I think it's time for play your passwords right. I, I think it's important to put a time frame together for this, right? So it is now episode 63. First of all, how have we done 63 episodes of this? Oh, boy. By the time we get to episode 65, unless there's enough backlash that people want to keep this game, I'm going to scrap it and come up with another game. I think it's done its job. I think it's had its time. Okay, well, always good to keep things fresh. I, I'm fine to not do this anymore. <laughs> I'm, I'm okay if we never do this again, honestly. Rue threw in the towel last episode. I would have preferred that we stopped, like, right before Sarah's guest segment. That's that's what I would have preferred, <laughs> really. I did hear for some, from some friends, though, that that was objectively hilarious. Like they, they were like, that was one of the funniest episodes ever. I, I loved listening to you lose. I could do that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I think the first thing to talk about is the fact that we've just got off a virtual cruise ship and we've been all conferencing this week. And it's it's been very interesting from my point of view because we're supposed to be in all these tropical places and, and I wore quite loud tropical shirts. But for me, this has been the week where my heating broke as well. So it's been freezing cold in the rest of my house. <laughs> so I've been wearing like wool, you know, long johns and, and T-shirts and then a Hawaiian shirt. And a, what's the the flowers on a chain thing called? A lei. Yeah, one of those, like, as well. So I looked really tropical, but also I, wa- I was quite warm and, and, and kind of cozy. That's the way to do it. You've got to get those thermal layers in. It's all about the microfibers. Yeah, which I've never had to do on a cruise before. But because this cruise was virtual, and I, I think, you know, I think it was one of the best AG comps. I really enjoyed it. I think it was arguably better than some of the cruises. Yeah. It was amazing. I mean, the virtual environment was, it blew my mind. I felt like I actually had been on a cruise. Yeah. So, I mean, we had a cruise ship that you could move around Google Maps style. And then there were lots of like rooms that you go in to be in the different things. I liked the fact that I still, despite it being virtual, I still managed to get lost on the cruise (laughs) ship. I, I think that's something that seems to happen like every year. And it was just, you know, it was good to have that continuity. One of the things that was neat is that we were able to bring in speakers this year in a way that we haven't in the past. And I thought that that was, that was a neat change of pace to actually get some people who don't work here to come and talk to the company. And so we had a really nice talks too, which was fun. And, and I think you, like the, the awkwardness of doing that on a real cruise ship is, is a little bit too much. Like if you bring an external speaker on a, on a cruise ship to speak to you, they're there for the whole week. And they might not hang out with the same crew, but you bump into them a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and I think there's like a level of level of awkwardness to that. Should we uh, should we get into some Watchtower Weekly? We we probably should, otherwise we're gonna run out of time. Yeah, let's let's jump into some Watchtower Weekly. Watchtower Weekly is where we run down the top tech stories of the last few weeks from a security point of view. And it's named after our Watchtower service where we help you stay safe online by letting you know about breaches and weak passwords and things of that nature. So Matt. Take it away. What are the headlines? So the first one is, is Google is weighing up an anti-tracking feature for Android similar to Apple's, although all the critics are essentially saying that it doesn't quite go as far as Apple's. I am suspicious around anything Google and anti-tracking because, you know, immediately as soon as you say those two things, you're like, okay, it's anti-tracking. But aren't they still tracking, right? Like, I'm sure there's a whitelist and Google.com is right at the top. 
So yeah, Google is considering uh, developing an Android alternative to Apple's upcoming app tracking transparency. A new planned opt-in requirement it will impose on developers that demands that they ask for permission to track iOS users across apps and websites. The news underscores the increasing pressure on large tech companies, many spurred on by Apple, to take on more proactive measures to better protect user privacy. Google says it won't say whether it's, it is indeed working on the anti-tracking feature, but we're always looking for ways to work with developers to raise the bar on privacy while enabling a healthy ad-supported app ecosystem. Mm. Healthy, ad-supported, an ecosystem. There we go. Three words in a sentence. <laughs> All three attacking each other. So first uh, announced at Apple's developer conference last summer, app tracking transparently effectively slides a system-level opt-in between an app's tracking capabilities and a user's preference. If the users say they would rather not be tracked, there's nothing the developer can do to get around that because, you know, Apple will disable the developer's ability to, to gather the so-called identifier for advertisers or IDFA. The reason why there are so many kind of calls against this and weird stories around like how this is killing small businesses and, and stuff like that is honestly just because so much money is made from your activity that feeds into what adverts you are shown. So it's not just the fact that can they show you adverts or not, it's can they show you adverts that are around your activity. So Apple intends to police developers using audits and other methods to enforce its policies, you know, which, of course, as Epic found out, uh, includes potentially suspending or banning apps from the App Store if a developer does things that they don't like. Google's take on app tracking transparency, which is very hard to say, would likely not be as severe. Uh, instead of forcing opt-in requirements on some app developers, the Android alternative may resemble some of the upcoming privacy controls that look like they're, they're planned for the Chrome browser, in which the company seeks to end some of the more insidious tracking technology on the web by developing less invasive alternatives and giving users more opt-out mechanisms. So it's likely to be, you know, you can track via this standard approved method and someone can opt out of that if they want to. I mean, I welcome it. I welcome any proactive activities in, in the anti-tracking area. But uh, it does seem like a, a half method and also a method that probably balances their business needs, which is finding all the information about you possible in order to make your search results better and their advertising better and less about you know, third parties. I mean, it's impossible not to be cynical about this. I mean, someone could try. Like, of course, of course, it has to balance. It is internal conflict of interest. There's going to be ground given up and it, they can't take as hard a stance as Apple can because their bread is buttered by the advertising industry. It's just it's a matter of fact, unless they split off that part of the company, like if they actually split the company in two and said that this part has nothing to do with this part, then maybe. I think it's it's even more interesting than that, right? They almost want to cut off other tracking <laughs> because then their data becomes more reliable their data becomes better and they're cutting off the the competition so I, I think there are monopolies at play here but they're leaving google with a bigger share almost it's uh it'll be interesting to see how all these things kind of come together especially if they start rolling out in things like chrome as we can see in in safari now you know they they block a whole load of third parties or tell you that they're there Brave does similar things and, and Chrome is kind of left out to be the non-privacy browser. No, it's super interesting. I feel like it, it's surely a step in the right direction, although it's kind of conflicting. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be a, 
a slow road, or at least a slower road for Google to enforce all of these things. So the next one is Cyberpunk 2077. The studio falls victim to ransomware and a data leak has been threatened. CD Projekt says it's been hacked by attackers who have been able to access its internal network, encrypt some devices and collect certain data from the Polish video game company. So the Cyber 2077 developer, they also made Witcher 3, I believe, says it will not give in to the demands or negotiate with the attacker and does not believe any personal data of the players or service has been compromised. In a tweet disclosing the attack, the company shared the ransom note left by the hackers who claim to have accessed the source code for Cyberpunk 2077, Witcher 3, Gwent, which is a previously unreleased version of Witcher 3, and the hackers are threatening to release the source code alongside internal legal HR and financial documents if we will not come to an agreement. I think that means money. In a statement, CG Projects said that it has secured its IT infrastructure and begun restoring its data from intact backups. It says it has informed the relative authorities as well as IT forensic specialists. The attack follows the developer's troubled launch of Cyberpunk 2077. The game released with numerous bugs and performance issues. I think they actually pulled it from the PlayStation Store and, and offered a bunch of refunds. You know, CG project has been subjected to intense criticism for this, but I, I don't think any of that criticism can really fall on the fact that they were subject to this. It seems like it's not too bad <laughs> because they haven't, you know, released any of the player's data or anything like that. But obviously the information that they've created with the source code is a uh, is, is probably a pretty big hit to this studio. So what is the risk if hackers release the source code? I mean, I think essentially they can create builds of the game and they could make small changes to the game and then release that as well. It, it, it essentially becomes, you know, like an open source project at that point. You know, most games are then compiled and you can't kind of edit or fiddle with them too much. But this one, because the source code would be all out there, expect to see kind of Cyberpunk 2077 with a whole bunch of changes. This is their intellectual property. Like the source code, they have invested years and years in developing this intellectual property that enables them to create these games. Cyberpunk 2077 notwithstanding, Witcher 3 is, is one of the greatest games of, of all time by some accounts. And so to have sort of these industry secrets leaked out, like that's, that's a problem. And I think... The, the real danger from a security point of view comes from the fact that you could include any number of tracking or viruses or malware or anything and then compile it up and stick it on the, the web and say, here's a free version of Cyberpunk 2077. Yeah. So the, the next one is, is quite an interesting one. A hacker tried to poison Florida's city water supply. A remote hacker, whatever one of those is, managed to gain access to the computer system at the water treatment plant in Oldsmar, Florida, and briefly increased the amount of sodium hydroxide in the water by a dramatic amount. So I think this is a, a combination of a normal, in commas, <laughs> in quote marks, a, a normal attack and a made slightly worse by effectively the old small Florida water people being remote and working from home and kind of accessing their system remotely. And obviously that wasn't set up too securely. So according to the press conference called by Sheriff Bob, 
and uh, the mayor and the city manager, unauthorized access to the computer systems was first seen at approximately 8 o'clock in the morning on Friday. According to what was said at the press conference, the operator at the time didn't suspect anything out of the ordinary because his supervisor and others remotely accessed the computer all the time. So the mouse moving around was not like a bad sign. However, at 1.30pm, the hacker returned and began to meddle with the plant settings. The hacker changed the sodium hydroxide from 100 parts per million to 1100 parts per million. And obviously this is a significant and you know, potentially dangerous increase. Uh, sodium hydroxide, known as lye, is the main ingredient in liquid drain cleaners. And it's also used to control water acidity and remove metals from the drinking water in the water treatment plants. It's nasty, really nasty stuff, sodium hydroxide. It's like really corrosive and causes severe burns. Oh, yikes. So after the intruder increased the parts per million from 100 to 1100, the intruder exited the system and the plant operator immediately reduced the level back to the appropriate amount. Because the operator noticed the increase and lowered it right away, there was actually no adverse effect on the water being treated. So it all turned out kind of okay. And I'm sure their security internally has been increased from this. And according to officials, other safeguards would have probably prevented the increasing chemicals from successfully reaching the water supply. But yes, that is very worrying. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, replace water treatment plant with a nuclear power station. And I think you have a 90s action film. I think this is really frightening. I, I wonder whether he kind of hacked into it with that malicious intent or whether he kind of got in there and then was like, oh, what damage can I do? Okay, I'm going to meddle with these sodium hydroxide levels. Yeah, it is it is very interesting. It, it, it strikes me as something that is quite worrying, which is this is probably a small city's water supply that is independently secured, independently run, and there's probably no budget for cybersecurity, right? Let's be honest, like a city-level water supply that's been forced to work from home, you know, they're, they're probably using virtual desktop or, or an outdated version of something. And yeah, I can see as more things have to work from home, this is like a huge issue. Lucky they had all the other safeguards in place that, you know, it was never probably going to make the change to the water content that people would actually receive in their homes. It's still frightening. Yeah, you, you can hope so. I, I've just got the interface for the water control in my mind and, and like all they did was drag one lever up and then log out and probably not <laughs> thought nothing about it. And yeah, I, I wonder when the FBI catches up to them, uh, whether they'll have that same thought. Can we just have the obligatory, like, what's the matter with you people? statement it's like it's a pandemic is there not enough going wrong in the world can we just could we maybe not screw with people's water yeah yeah tell me about it well listen uh i had the pleasure of speaking with patrick wardle from objectivec.com where he talks about all the cool things that he's done to help keep mac users safe and i think that we'll probably hear that next Dropping in for a chat today is Patrick Wardle. Patrick is an author, software developer, public speaker, and security researcher. He is also the principal security researcher as Jamf, as well as the creator of ObjectiveC.com, where he shares free and open source security tools to protect Mac users. Welcome to the show, Patrick. How are you? I'm good, Michael. Uh, definitely stoked to be talking nerdy with you today about what I think are some really interesting Mac security topics. Yeah, absolutely. I was I was pretty excited when I saw that we were going to have you on the show. Can you give us a little bit of background about yourself and about Objective-C and how that came to be? So in terms of my background, I 
went to the University of Hawaii, studied computer science, learned some good fundamentals, some good computer science, did a short internship at NASA uh, in California. I worked on software for the space shuttles. And after that, I then was hired by the National Security Agency, the NSA, it's America's spy agency that's kind of tasked with, well, two missions, uh, protecting DOD and military networks from hackers, malware, et cetera, et cetera. And then also engaging in offensive cyber espionage operations to gather signals and intelligence about potential terrorists, unfriendly foreign governments. So that was really interesting because I first began on the defensive side of the house as a malicious code analyst. So I got to study reverse engineer some really interesting, sophisticated computer viruses and exploits that had been used to target DOD and uh, military networks. Learned a lot from how advanced nation states attack other nation states. And then transitioned to the other side, put on my uh, offensive hacker hat, let's say, and uh, was basically, well, a hacker for the NSA doing all sorts of shenanigans. Again, a very interesting learning experience, probably one of the few places where you can legally engage in offensive cyber operations, which I think really gives you invaluable effort when you transition out if you do and and are looking to secure and provide defensive capabilities. You mentioned Objective-C. It's the Mac security website and tool suite that I created. Kind of has an interesting start uh, story background. So after the NSA, I moved back to Hawaii. I was working for a small startup and some friends that were surfers. And one of my friends says, oh, Patrick, you do computers. Come fix my computer. <laughs> you do computers. Uh, you know, friends, family, relatives. You're the IT person now and forever. 100%. 100%. So uh, I popped over his house. He's a good friend. He had a Mac computer that had been infected with uh, some adware. Now, at the time, I was very familiar with malware, adware on Windows. I knew you downloaded, you know, an auto runs utility or some other tools to provide some analysis figure out what was on the system, pretty easy to clean it up. And so I looked for a tool for that for a macOS system uh, because I wasn't familiar with how malware would persist on, on such a device. And turns out there wasn't any tool. So I said, hey, I'll be back in you know a day or two, ran home, slapped together this pretty simple <laughs> Python script that you know was embarrassingly bad. But it would do things like enumerate auto-run locations on a macOS system looking for unrecognized, unsigned software. So pretty basic, but <laughs> headed back over his house, ran it, and it uncovered some adware, kind of a variant that wasn't really being picked up by AV engines at the time. So that was really cool. The best part of the story was he was a surfboard shaper, and as a thanks, he gave me a really nice discount on a custom surfboard, which I still have today. Nice. Finally, being a nerd, you know, paid off. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. But the takeaway was really, hey, there are not these security utility security tools available for macOS. So the original goal was just to provide parity with all the tools and utilities I was familiar with on uh, Windows. So that was kind of the the onus, the inspiration for Objective-C, and it's kind of grown into something I'm, I'm, I'm all really passionate about. That's really cool. You know, that was sort of your first intro. Have you seen a shift in the malware space over the years, and, and in particular, like, on the Mac side? Yeah, Michael, that's an excellent question, because until recently, we really weren't seeing a lot of innovation. And I think there's a variety of reasons for this. Previous versions of Mac OS were not, let's say, as secure as they could have been. Also, Mac users were pretty naive and would like click and run pretty much everything because there's this unfortunate 
falsehood that, you know, Macs don't get viruses or not as susceptible. So uh, the downside to that is a lot of Mac users, and I would include myself in this previously, um, you know, we're a little bit overconfident, right? You think, oh yeah, you know, Windows should, you know, maybe not click on links, open random emails, but on Mac, I'm, I'm safe. And so malware could leverage that kind of overconfidence and the fact that also the operating system might not be as secure as well as it is now. And so the bar really wasn't that high. Also, security tools, you know, antivirus tools, for example, for Mac OS, really weren't that sophisticated. Um, a lot of times you would have a company that would have a very mature Windows product and marketing or finance would say, hey, look, Macs are becoming more prevalent. We need a Mac version so we can sell to companies that have uh, Mac systems. And, you know, conceptually detecting malware on Mac OS is fundamentally very similar to that on Windows, but under the hood, it's totally different. So you definitely need, I think, a unique insight into the nuances of Mac OS to create a comprehensive security product. So this all means that the malware was really not that sophisticated. It was pretty basic, required user interaction, really kind of almost boring to study and analyze. However, in the last, I would say, two or three years, we saw some really interesting trends. So I recently published, uh, and I do this every year, kind of a report of the new Mac malware of, of the year. And the goal is really just to break down, provide a technical analysis of all the new samples. Usually there's not that many. Look how they persist, how they infect their users, what are their capabilities. And so that also allows me to extrapolate some really interesting trends. So one thing that was very interesting in 2020 is about half of the new malware samples we saw were actually... Windows or Linux versions that for the first time had been ported to Mac OS. So we have malware such as Dackles, IP Storm, another one called Gravity Rat. So this to me shows that as Macs become more prevalent, especially in the enterprise, but also in the consumer market, right? So, you know, Macs are becoming ever more prevalent and popular. Hackers are very opportunistic. So they say, hey, we already have this malware we've written for Windows. We know how it works. It talks to our backend command and control servers. Let's just port this to Mac so that we can then target all these new users. And that's exactly what we saw, especially in 2020. So that was one interesting trend that's really not surprising, but definitely to me, very interesting to see. And I think that aligns directly with you know, the popularity of Mac, especially in the workplace. Another interesting trend we saw was just the sophistication of the malware. So we had, for example, an interesting piece of malware called XCS Set, and it actually leveraged a few zero-day vulnerabilities to bypass some of Apple's recent security and privacy mechanisms that they built into the operating system. So Apple's been doing a really good job constantly adding uh, new security mechanisms, anti-malware mitigations baked into the operating system. And now we're seeing adversaries having to evolve and adapt to that. So it's always going to be a cat and mouse game. And what Apple does and they realize is, you know, let's just increase the bar and make it more and more difficult. We now see malware authors oftentimes leveraging vulnerabilities to sidestep these. But it is interesting to see kind of the use of vulnerabilities and exploits now being packaged into malware. And I think that's a trend we're just going to see more and more of because the operating system is getting more locked down. One last interesting trend was the abuse of Apple's technologies or their malware mitigation. So Apple recently introduced this concept of notarization. So on recent versions of Mac OS, in order for software to be allowed to run, first has to be sent to Apple. Apple will scan it and essentially then put a stamp of approval, a notarization saying, yes, this is allowed to run. 
This is a great idea from a security point of view because the majority of malware attacks in the past required on coercing or tricking the user into, well, essentially infecting themselves. You know, it's like, hey, there's a flash update you need to install or, you know, please download and run this, you know, cryptocurrency trading application. It'd be basically unsigned malware, but a lot of users, unfortunately, would be tricked into running it. So Apple said, okay, hey, we're going to try to put a stop to this. We're going to say the operating system will validate these packages and only run them if they're notarized, only run them if they've been scanned by us. So even if the user is tricked, you know, when they double click, the operating system will basically say, hey, wait a minute, this hasn't been notarized, this hasn't been scanned by Apple. Again, a great idea. We've seen, though, adversaries, because this was impacting their ability to infect Mac users, especially in the adware space, there's a lot of money to be made, uh, start to now actually submit their samples to Apple. <laughs> in some cases, Apple has actually inadvertently approved or notarized basically the malicious code. That means it's still able to run even on the latest versions of Mac OS. So, Again, kind of a natural response that the adversaries are taking as Apple ups the ante, but it is interesting to see them in many cases still successfully being able to, you know, kind of penetrate Mac users. And then the last thing is, is we've also seen an increase in the sophistication of features. So one great example was a very interesting piece of malware from this last year uh, called Evil Quest. First and foremost, Evil Quest was a true computer virus, perhaps only the second one ever to target Mac OS. And what a computer virus does is once it infects a system, it scans for other binaries, other programs, and then will inject its malicious code, infecting them, just like a normal biological virus. This is rather sophisticated and advanced because it means even if you delete or remove the original malware, well, it still exists on the system, right? infected all these other files. It also had the ability, for example, to monitor itself and provide kind of self-defense mechanisms, which again, is pretty sophisticated capability. And finally, the last thing it had, which I think was, was kind of neat, is the ability to execute code directly out of memory. So for example, when it runs and talks to the remote command and control server for tasking, which is something malware often does, the adversary or the attacker could provide a new payload or program to run. Now, what normally happens is the virus or the malware will save that to the file system and then execute it. And that works, but the problem is that leaves a lot of forensic artifacts behind, right? There's new processes being created, the files on the file system. So an antivirus engine can scan that, an analyst can grab that and analyze the new payload. Well, what EvilQuest does is says, hey, we don't want any of that. We don't want anything left behind. So we're actually going to download it directly from the server into memory, and then via some kind of neat tricks, directly execute it out of memory. So its second stage payloads never hit the file system, which means they can't be scanned by antivirus engines, or they can't be very easily collected by analysts to study and figure out what these secondary payloads are. So that's kind of some neat trends we've seen, at least in the last year or two, where adversaries are really starting to up their game and really create these more sophisticated, these more complex uh, computer viruses and malware that's targeting macOS. Wow, that last one is really something. 
I want to go back to I want I want to touch on a couple of the points that you brought up. So in regards to like to system integrity protection, Apple introduced system integrity protection back with El Capitan, and then a year or two later they introduced system integrity protection for apps, which means that if you have opted into that, your app process is actually locked down, preventing it from being tampered with and stuff like that. Are these types of improvements that Apple is making in in security staying ahead of anything, or are these more reactionary moves on their part? That is an excellent question. I think Apple tries to be somewhat proactive. A lot of times there's challenges because security and usability oftentimes are in conflict. So now macOS, for example, will ask you before an application is allowed to access the microphone or the camera, which means there's a prompt the user has to click, maybe go into a panel to allow it, right? Those are security features. Those aren't really usability features. Right. Security users like that, but the average user probably gets somewhat annoyed. So Apple definitely has a difficult problem of balancing security and, and usability because at the end of the day, they still want their users to enjoy the experience of using Mac OS. To answer your question though, I think something like system integrity protection or notarization, those are generally reactive. Again, because I think security is often in conflict with usability, a lot of times, you know, Apple waits till there's somewhat of a problem um, before taking action. And I'm not saying I blame them. And I think in many cases, there are, they are somewhat proactive. But if there was no malware, if there were no security risks, I don't think there would be any motivation to create, you know, more and more perhaps user-unfriendly security features that also a lot of times break third-party application or legacy code. So I think any operating system vendor the security is generally pushed forward by what the adversaries are doing. And hopefully, you know, and I, I know Apple does a good job. They study the threats and the trends, and hopefully they are, you know, ahead a few steps. But some of it, I would say, is definitely reactionary. But the good thing is, again, I think the very positive takeaway is that the bar is continually raised higher and higher, which means that a lot of the less sophisticated malware and less sophisticated adversaries are really going to be left behind. Some of them do evolve as expected, but you know, overall, it's a lot more difficult to target and infect a Mac OS user than it was even, I would say, a year or two ago. So that's a huge win, I think, for both Cupertino, but also the individual users of their platform. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so at this point in the interview, we've got all the security nerds just on the edge of their seats enjoying the hell out of this. <laughs> <laughs> so Apple has uh, shipped some big improvements sort of at the end of 2020 and, and has some more coming up in 2021. And I'm talking specifically about Apple Silicon and the M1 chip and, and things like that. What implications did those types of architecture shifts have on Mac users and their security? Yeah, that's an excellent question, Michael, because one thing that's really unique about Apple is they design both the hardware and the software, which allows them to create a system, a product that... Yes, it's very user-friendly and kind of just works out of the box uh, because they've been able to test and integrate things incredibly well. But it also allows them to create hardware that has security components in mind that play really well with their specific software, their operating system. So the M1 chip from a user point of view is amazing, right? I just picked up one of the MacBook Airs and it's just game-changing, right? Incredible battery life, you know, runs really cool. Like, it's just a great product. But I'm even more excited as a security nerd because under the hood, the new chip, this Apple Silicon, really provides a lot of uh, additional security features 
that Apple was basically able to bake in at the hardware level. And anytime you talk to a security expert individual, you know, there's basically software level security mechanisms, which are often trivial-ish to bypass. And then there's hardware level security mechanisms, which are a lot more difficult to. So some of the benefits of the M1 chip, uh, we talked about the system integrity protection. Uh, Apple's kind of extended this a little further and they refer to this as system integrity. And it basically means that when your system is booting, that this chip will verify the version of macOS is authorized and fully signed by Apple, meaning it hasn't been tampered by you know, someone with physical access or a piece of malware that slipped onto your system. Another really nice feature is something that Apple refers to as data protection. And this is something that third-party applications can use, and it provides file-level encryption to protect you know, application-specific data with no impact or no system performance. So again, it's kind of this hardware security feature that also third-party tool developers or applications can opt into. And this is a great idea because if you think about it, a lot of third-party applications contain a lot of really sensitive information. I think one per password is a, is a great example, right? It's got uh, information about your credentials and your passwords. So by Apple making these security features available, not just to the operating system, but to third-party applications, third-party developers, that's an amazing thing that the M1 chip has added. And then the last one is, and I won't go too nerdy into this, but uh, based on the architecture arm, it's a new kind of CPU instruction set, uh, new in terms of uh, being applied to the Macs. iOS iPhones have been running this, uh, I think, since the beginning. There are some built-in security features such as pointer authentication that uh, in a nutshell make it a lot more difficult to exploit a system with a security vulnerability. So these are all great because these are basically just uh, gained for free if you have the, the M1 chip. So you know, I think we a lot of times talk about the user benefits, the battery life, and et cetera, et cetera. But there's a lot of security features that are built into this system, uh, system on a chip that a lot of users will never even know about, but that's almost the best kind of security that's kind of baked in, built in uh, at the hardware level. So uh, I'm definitely really excited about that from a security point of view as well. Yeah, I uh, I had been so focused on all of the news around uh, just how how cool, like liter- like temperature-wise cool the machines are. People talking about, you know, oh, I've been, I built this giant project and like normally I have to put a pillow or something on my lap if I'm working on the couch. And now this thing, I could just, you know, it doesn't even get hot. It's amazing. The battery life is incredible. Like I've had a few coworkers that have obviously picked them up and I'm waiting. It's getting hard. It was hard to wait, but you know, I'm, I'm waiting. But I didn't, I didn't even pick up on all of like the sort of architecture-based security improvements. Those types of things are the kind of stuff that I love as a software developer in particular, a software developer of a security product, because it means that entire attack vectors for our apps just disappear, right? They just, it's gone. It's, it's great. Yeah. That's wicked, wicked cool. And and that's, and that's the best. Um, And it's interesting, as you mentioned, right? This is something that a lot of people talk about. And if you dig into Apple's documentation, there's really not that much. So they really haven't, I think, really trumpeted the security features of the chip, but, you know, I think it's because increased battery life and coolness factor sells a lot more systems, which which is fine, right? Because, yeah. again, even if the user is solely interested in extended battery life and get this more secure system, I would argue that's that's still a win. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to pivot to talking a little bit about your book. Uh, you are working on a free open source book called The Art of Mac Malware Analysis. 
Can you tell us a little bit more about that and how people can get involved? I mean, how neat, like an open source book. That's super cool. So the idea was to create uh, this comprehensive book, um, but make it freely available online. Also provide a mechanism so that people could provide feedback and, and comments. So uh, the way it works is, you know, as I publish chapters, uh, there's kind of two versions. There's a PDF version people can download and read. But then there's also essentially an editable version where uh, people can go and add comments or feedback. And this is great. And selfishly, this helps out me kind of with the editing process, uh, but also ensures that if, you know, part of a chapter is unclear or perhaps I've, you know, missed a really good example, you know, users can provide and then, you know, we can have a discussion and, and, and ultimately guide the book forward uh, in a really cool way. So, you know, it's really neat to kind of have that community involvement. So the book, it's available if you go to taomm.org, that's for the art of Mac, malware.org. Uh, and as Michael, as you mentioned, the first book is uh, analysis. Hopefully there'll be more in the series, but the idea is to describe how to become a Mac malware analyst. So if anyone's really interested in that, or even, you know, somewhat interested in Mac malware, uh, definitely go to taomm.org. And as I mentioned, totally free online. Eventually, there is going to be a published version, which I'm really excited about. So, you know, if you want a hard copy, that will be a uh, an option as well. Wow, that is really cool. What an incredible resource. It's basically a mini course. Like, that's really neat. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> nice. Uh, so, Patrick, I, I want to give you an opportunity to, of course, send people to the right places on the web, where should people go to find out more about you, Objective-C, or your new book? Yeah, exactly. So probably the best place is Objective-C. So that's Objective-S-E-E. -E. It's kind of a play on words at multiple levels. So if you go to Objective-C.com, uh, I blog about a lot of the security topics. Uh, when a new Mac malware comes out, I often analyze it, but also explain how I analyze that. So it's a great kind of hands-on opportunity to learn about that. Also, uh, the tools I create, the majority are open source. You can waste source code if you're interested. They're all free. It's a kind of place to start. And there's also a link to the book if you really want to learn more about, you know, becoming a competent uh, Mac computer virologist. So yeah, objective-c.com. Also, I'm on, I'm on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Patrick Wardle. It's W-A-R-D-L-E. DMs are open. As we mentioned, I'm really stoked to get really excited about talking about this. So uh, I love it when people ping me hey, you know, here's this new Matt Maurer sample, or did you see this report that came out? So I really like to engage with the community. So uh, that's probably the best way to uh, get in touch with me. But again, I really want to thank Michael uh, for having me on the podcast, 1Password for all the great work they do. They're also really a great friend and sponsor of a lot of the work that Objective-C does, which I think really helps protect Mac users uh, around the world. So I'm, I'm very appreciative of their vision and their mindset. Awesome. Patrick, this has been... A lot of fun. I really appreciate getting to just talk nerdy with someone for an hour. So uh, good. <laughs> so like this is this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you, Michael. Again, I appreciate the time, and uh, I would love to be back. Love talking nerdy, and I'm sure we're gonna see new Mac malware, new exploits, new trends. Uh, so there'll be always something to uh, to talk about, for better or worse. I think it's time for play your passwords right. Play your passwords right. Do you mean the game show that is just Swiffering the Nation here? That is uh, <laughs> where we take 
a list of words and we pass them through everyone's favorite security website, haveibeenpwned.com. We come up with numbers for how often those words have been breached. And then we try to guess if each one has been breached more times or less times than the one previous. So we'll start with one. Uh, This is the sports edition, by the way. We're going to start with the first word. We will be told how many times it's been breached. We would then be given the second word, and we have to guess if it's been breached more times or less times than the previous, and we're off to the races. And we keep score, and Matt wins, is how this game typically works. (laughs) (laughs) Every time, without fail. (laughs) All right, well, here goes. The first word in Play Your Passwords Right today is tennis, which has been breached 4,487 times. So... The next word, and do we think this has come up higher or lower number of times? This word is hole in one. (laughs) I was like, what's a a hole in one? (laughs) I read that too. (laughs) Hole in one. I was like, I am not familiar with this sport. I think this one's less. (laughs) Uh, This is more. I don't understand why anybody would make their password hole in one. I think that this is definitely more. Okay, it is higher. Very, very slightly higher at (laughs) 4,508. So oh. first point to Rue. All right, you're off to... So all I have to do for the rest of the game is just match Matt's answers and I win. <laughs> <laughs> just go against your instincts. The next word is net. Oh, come on. Higher or lower? Lower. It's, it's definitely got... No, oh, this there's, is... there's no website that accepts this. I'm sorry. This is lower. This is, this is way lower. Come on. On the grounds that it's too short to be a password? It's way too short. Yes. Sorry to let you know. It's been included <laughs> no! 6,510 times. Oh, honestly. It's ridiculous. What? Okay, Matt, we need to remember, but also length of password has no basis on its breachability. But why doesn't it? I don't care. At this point, I think Troy is a genius and he's just dumped a word file into into that and he's and he's just built a machine that like spits out yes every time. He's just screwing with you. He's just doing that just so that you lose this game. <laughs> no, yeah. I think he built it specifically for this game. Okay, next word. And this word is fencing. Do we think that it comes up higher or lower than 6,510? Uh, I, fencing is definitely less popular, right? I would agree with that, actually, yes. I'm going lower. Although it might be popular in the gardening community. <laughs> <laughs> it's lower, though, right, Kat? It's lower. It's lower, so 2,805. I said lower. Hang on, what? Yeah, no, we both got it right. Okay, all right, that's all right. I gave, I gave us both a point, don't worry. Okay, next up we have gymnastics. Higher or lower than 2,805? Too long, too complicated, lower than fencing. Yeah, I agree with that. Lower than fencing. You guys are not on flying form. This is 13,000. Oh my <laughs> goodness. 13,098. Okay, so I think we ha- need we need to have a conversation. If you're a gymnast out there and you're using gymnastics as your password because, you know, gymnasts for life and all that, <laughs> uh, don't. Don't do that. I was trying to take the Sarah approach of, of like, no, people are too lazy to type that. But you know who's not too lazy? Gymnasts. <laughs> They're the yeah. opposite of lazy. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> okay, next up, sport. Higher or lower? Anna's imagination has gone wild over this <laughs> We need to have a sports-related one. By the fifth word, she was at sport. She couldn't come up with anything else. It's like uh, fencing, gymnastics. Um, <laughs> I'm going lower. Ruth? Oh, sorry. Yes. Yes. Lower. Correct. 12,504. Ooh, just. Next up, surfer. Um, higher. Higher. Yeah. Correct. 38,072. 
Okay. I mean, you are matching all of my answers now. Yes, but not on purpose. Okay. I'm still going with my gut. <laughs> I'll answer first if you like. Like, I'm happy to. Okay, next up, we have lacrosse. Uh, um, very famous in, uh, very very popular, rather, in my neck of the woods here. Yeah, very big in the States, right? Yeah, well, we have a like a quite a strong uh, Native American influence in the area. And, of course, lacrosse being a Native American sport, I think it just, it bridged the divide. Mm, cool. Either way, this is lower. Matt? Yeah. Yeah, I think lower too. Higher. 45,659. Oh, my goodness. Hoy. That is very impressive. Impressive enough for you to exclaim, ahoy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I think we need to have, you know, another conversation with people uh, who play lacrosse. If lacrosse is your password, don't. Yes, don't do that. Lacrosse for life, but don't. Even if you don't play lacrosse and lacrosse is your password, (laughs) don't. (laughs) That's very true. Okay, next word. Wrestling. Oh, my wife's father, my father-in-law, uh, wrestling wrestling enthusiast. Big, big mm. wrestling enthusiast. Cool. But like the real kind, not, oh man, we're going to get hate mail. The real kind, not not uh, WWE. Oh, so no capes? What? That's not real? All this time I've been watching, I can't remember any of them now. <laughs> the Heart Man? <laughs> yep, uh, yeah. Well, that was one of them, right? Yep. That was definitely someone from 1989. Good job. <laughs> Uh, I'm going higher because there are lots of people that like wrestling and I I feel like it's long enough. I'm still harping on about length, honestly. Rue? It's higher. It's higher even than lacrosse. Sorry, you're both incorrect. Oh my goodness. Lower. Okay, but it not not like by a substantial, we weren't wrong by a substantial amount. Give me a break. 10,000 lower. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Next up, Kay. we have baseball. Swing batter, 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 swing batter. <laughs> higher. There's a lot of people that like baseball. Yeah. No. I think it's higher. I th- I'm going to take the opposite just to give you a fighting chance, Matt. So uh, I'm going to say lower. Oh, well, Matt is correct. It's a significantly higher. Woof. At 331,610. <laughs> there we go. Matt's back in the game. Okay, we really need to have a conversation with baseball enthusiasts. <laughs> Yeah, not at all surprising there. Yikes. Okay. Right. Knowing Anna, the next one is like much lower. Next up, soccer. Oh, okay. No, I think soccer. Oh. Uh, lo- lower. This is lower. Uh, I'm going lower. It's hard to get higher than 331,000. So, yeah, I, I agree. Correct. But only slightly. <laughs> not by much, though. 319,341. She's going to end with football and it's going to be like 5 million. You just know Anna too well. She's ending with football. Yep. Oh, higher. It's yeah. I'm sorry. I can't. It's got to be one of the the most popular passwords. Okay. So Matt, listen. Here's the thing. I'm calling an audible. <laughs> you and I are both saying higher, but I think that we need to then pick an over under on a million. Okay. Do we differentiate on that? Because I think that it's I think it's over a million. I think it's under a million. Do you truly or are you just trying to like take the opposite? Because if you do, we can find a different No, difference. no, no. I, I think it's under a million. Alright, I'm gonna say it's over a million. Go ahead, Kat. Yeah, well it wouldn't be play your passwords right if Matt wasn't the winner. <laughs> <laughs> okay, alright. It didn't even get close. Four hundred and forty two thousand four hundred and forty eight. Matt wins, of course. Well done, Matt. <laughs> fantastic round well done well done Matt. <laughs> i enjoyed the the fact that we needed differentiation on the score there yeah that was um yeah that was, that was good all right well that was that was the end of yet another thrilling episode of random but memorable thank you everyone for if you stuck with us through the end love you cat love you matt love you both all right love you both all right take care bye-bye bye bye